Hey, welcome to Kingsway Caringba. We are a community inspired by love to live differently. I'm Dave, one of the pastors here. It's so great to have you with us. We pray this teaching will inspire you, build your faith, and lead you to a life of fullness and freedom in Jesus. Enjoy the message. We can all say amen to that and take a seat. Just don't take it too far. They've got to be kept that distance. It always gets one little giggle when I say take a seat but not too far. And I think it's always you, Carolyn. Thank you, Carolyn, for laughing at all of my jokes. So, <laughs> I appreciate your encouragement. And uh, we don't often have in-jokes. You don't do that from the, the pulpit with just one-on-one um, people. But um, Joan White... Um, she's Brett's mum, and she watches online every week. And Joan, I just wanted you to know this morning that I put on a college shirt just for you. Brett got some feedback. <laughs> I even, Joan, put on my preaching volleys. Didn't iron my undies, but um, you get a college shirt. I think I just undid all the good work. <laughs> Sorry, Joan. It's wonderful to have you with us every week down there in Melbourne. Hope it's not quite as wet and soggy down there, Joan, but um, we're enjoying it up here. I, I this week, um, was thankful for a lady named Mrs. Bingley, and I've spoken about Mrs. Bingley from uh, up front here before. Uh, but in 1947, a small gathering of passionate uh, believers at 74 years ago began meeting in a home on Burrany Bay Road in Cronulla and uh, they met to worship in the Smiths' home. And uh, the Smiths held every week a small gathering of people. Um, and it is the year that history were, would record that Caringbar Church of Christ was born. Uh, in that same year, Mrs. Bingley uh, from Hornsby Church of Christ from the other side of Sydney, gave um, a group at the time called the Home Missions Committee a gift of two blocks of land on the corner of Jacaranda Road and the Kingsway. Presumably, these were blocks of land that um, were uh, part of their family handed down and uh, maybe were used for farmland. Um, And what she did is she foresaw the need for a strong church in the Shire, and she wanted her land to be the land where that began. And so she offered to the Home Missions Committee two blocks for free. However, the Home Missions Committee decided that development in the Shire was slow and that there would never be a church in the area and suggested selling the land and putting the money somewhere else. Mrs. Bingley, however staunchly determined to see a church present from the outset of this area, adamantly refused their recommendation. The small group kept meeting in the Smith's house, and some six years later, on the 7th of March, 1953, after many arduous meetings, hard work, and everything else that went into getting Caringbar Church of Christ its own place to meet occurred on the corner of Jacaranda Road and the Kingsway. 
And since then, there have been various iterations of what gathered community has looked like, even in the last nearly 20 years that we've been in this location. But what has not changed is the amount and countlessness of the lives who have had an experience of Jesus as part of this community. I even remember 18 years ago being baptized in the Holy Spirit, standing somewhere on this corner of the carpet during worship. I was married here. I've had incredible encounters with God as part of this community, and my assumption is you have in one form or another as well. And I found myself being really thankful for Mrs. Bingley this week, that the staunchness and determination that she would have, knowing in her spirit that there was a God appointment for her, that some 74 years later, even on a rainy Sunday morning, that each of us here gathered as part of this community could have an encounter with the living presence of God. So Father, we thank you for the rich heritage and tradition that goes before us in this place. Father, we thank you for obedient people who have heard your voice and have not wavered in the face of difficulty, in the place of doubt, but have stuck true to what you've said. And Father, I pray that that would be true of our generation now, that the staunchness and the strength and the conviction by which we follow Jesus will be the tree that casts shade for the future generations to sit under that people would encounter Jesus for generations to come because of what we do now, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm just going to teach out of John chapter 4 this morning the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, and we are uh, into uh, week two, week three of our Moments series, uh, where in the lead up to Easter, we are looking at some incredible encounters that Jesus had along the road that changed the game in people's lives and the future of humanity forever. And this story of the woman at the well is such a moment. It is a moment that changed the game for this particular woman that we read about. It changed the game for an entire village, and it has changed the way that we are to to, to, uh, see and understand the radical compassion and love of Jesus. So if you've got your Bible, you can open to John chapter 4, verse 1. I've got it on the screen here, and we're just going to read the first three verses for now. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. Jesus heard that his public profile was growing. The popularity and the noise and everything around him was becoming too much. In fact, Jesus is a PR nightmare. His marketing team at this point would have been pulling their hair out. His Instagram likes were going up at a rate of knots. His followers on Facebook going absolutely gangbusters. His fan base was building. The the, the positive growth curve around him and his campaign was on the up and on the up. So what does Jesus do? He legs it. He boosts to another town. And what is true of this moment that we are are reading together this morning is like so many other moments in the Gospels, that the miraculous and meaningful often happen on the outskirts and not on center stage. And that is because compassion needs no audience. I'm going to speak about compassion 
this morning, if that's okay. Compassion needs no audience. Jesus was not about the big show. He wasn't concerned about the Instagram profile, likes, follows, or whatever the case might be. He wasn't interested about building his public profile nor his personal empire. He was about getting on with the business of loving people along the way of life, often in the ordinary, messy, and unexpected moments of it. As we are about to see, and spoiler alert, just I'm giving you kind of the end game right now, that it is by a lonely well, and not from a flashy pulpit in the temple, that Jesus picks this place, as in a well, and this moment to reveal himself as God to a woman that nobody would have possibly expected. The authority and power of Jesus was never manifest on center stage, but always in moments of compassion. And so I would say, if you're waiting for a platform or some kind of position to make a difference in somebody's life, you're most likely missing the moments that God has appointed you to be an agent of healing in the everyday, ordinary moments of somebody's life. You don't need to have some kind of title called life group leader or pastoral carer or chaplain or leader or preacher or singer or worship leader to have an impact for God's kingdom in somebody's life. Jesus is the reminder. If we can take anything from his life and it is his example, it is that compassion is not an event, but a way of being. In fact, this was John's entire purpose for writing his gospel, that a life of faith is not about collecting and curating a library full of facts, data, and opinions about Jesus, but to embody and live out our faith in ways that are congruent with the claims and example of Christ revealed to us in Scripture. And so in this moment of compassion, we continue to read that he departed for Galilee. And verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria, which just is the one next line there. We'll just stop there, please, Dave. He had to pass through Samaria. As a Jew, Jesus should have taken the longer road through Perea and not the shortcut through Samaria. Such was the nature of the Jewish-Samaritan relationship. Samaria and Samaritans, as far as the Jews saw it, were to be avoided, were to be given a wide berth. And on their trip north from Jerusalem down south to Galilee up north where they were headed, about 180 kilometers They could have gone just the direct as the crow flies route, but it was going to take them through Samaria, or they can take the long way, the familiar way, through Perea. But on this particular day, Jesus had something else on his mind, something else in his heart. He could have taken the easy road, the predictable road, the expected road, but instead Jesus, in this moment, chose the costly road. He could have gone the usual way, in the usual way, but there was a prompting in his soul. One of those ones where you feel the hook of God just grab part of your heart and say, come with me this way. You know, it happened to me in the gym the other day and I got it wrong. I'm happy to admit that, but I hope that I can grow in this, is that someone was there to buy a bottle of water, but I didn't have the cash there and I was buying a drink and 
um, in the moment, I just felt God saying, just pay for his bottle. And I'll just, in the moment, you know, just get caught up and, ah, but it's just awkward if I just say, hey, bro, I'll get your water. And anyway, I, I, I failed. <laughs> I shouldn't say failed. I could have done better. That's the growth positive kind of mindset, isn't it, Bretto? I could have done better. Jesus had a, a hook in his spirit that wouldn't let him go any other way than through Samaria. An assignment that for him would be confronting and conflicting, but one that he knew would be well worth it in the end. And I, I want to take from this that compassion does not sidestep suffering. It willfully enters it at cost to oneself for the freedom of others. You know, Jesus with the footy heading towards Jerusalem saw Samaria coming like a big front rower. And he could have sidestepped, got around him, taken the easy way, run and score to try in Galilee. But there was something in Jesus that caused him to take the costly road, that he would take on the confronting, that he would take on the challenging, that he would take on the costly. See, God assignments rarely lead you to a comfortable place. And my sense is that the Lord is looking for people who won't sidestep the difficult and the uncomfortable. He is looking for people who will give their yes in obedience to him, regardless of the assignment or the outcome. You know, as Jesus followers, we don't have the luxury of getting the plan or being told the outcome before we step. Jesus just says, come follow me. And I believe that right now God is asking people who are going to give their yes, who aren't willing to control the assignment or control the outcome. And if I can tighten the screw a little more here, what I sense that God is doing in the church right now is preparing her for deeper obedience to him regardless of the assignment or the outcome. And if you were to ask me, what does this look like? I mean, it looks like Jesus on the way to this well, walking in confidence, sure of who he was and why he was going there. Identity and purpose. That is what God is doing. That is how he is preparing the church to give him their yes. That he is doing a work that Jesus had done already. That as we saw in the baptism of Christ, he in that moment received and was convinced of who he was as the one who was chosen, the Son of God. And he received from the Father a commissioning of purpose. And so he could take the costly road knowing who he was and why he was there. And so I encourage you, lean into the thing that God is doing in your life around who you are and why you are here. Because he's going to call you to the costly road. He's going to call you to take on the front row forward who's coming at you. He's going to call you to do more than buy a drink at the gym for the person who couldn't find their money. God is going to be calling us to love and show compassion and mercy to people and in places that are going to cost us. And it is only from a place of our identity and our purpose and being sure of those things in who we are in Christ that we'll get there. When we come to know the truth of who we are in Christ and why we are here, being the compassionate presence of God in the world becomes first nature. We find ourselves flowing in the grace of it rather than struggling with the weight of it. Identity and purpose. Verse 5, so he, as in Jesus, flowing in the grace, sure of who he was and why he was there, came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son 
Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jacob's well. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, uh, which is midday. They start the clock at 6 a.m. in the Bible. And so the sixth hour, midday at Jacob's well. 1,800 years earlier or thereabouts, Jacob, having just reconciled with his brother Esau, after taking his inheritance wrongly from his dad and went and hid out in the wilderness for a while, they met each other on the road and, as you would assume, Jacob was pretty petrified of what a pretty upset Esau would have done to him. And in Genesis we 34-ish... We recount the story of that encounter and how they embraced and they hugged and it was all well with the world again. Jacob came to a town called Sychar near Samaria and he set up a camp for his family and his flocks. And if you've ever set up a camp before, uh, other than setting up shelter and fire, water is the next or the most important for survival. And so Jacob, like Dale Kerrigan, dug a hole. I dug a hole. He dug a well that provided and nourished for his family. He got out his shovel and he started digging. One scoop after another until he hit water like a kid at the beach. And he would have hit that water and he would have thought, this is my home. This is, this is where camp will be for my family and their families, and it ended up that Joseph received this land, and this was the place where Joseph camped. This is the place where his family was brought up. This was the place where his flocks were nourished. And it is by this ancient well, 1,800-year-old ancient well, that verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that's saying this to you, give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman turned to him and said, Sir, you have nothing to draw this water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, My friend, anyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not have to be thirsty or ever have to come back to this well in the heat of the day alone again. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here before I give you this living water. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying that you have no husband, for you've had five. And the one that you have now is actually not your husband. 
And she said to him, well, yeah, what, what you've said is, is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is here now when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will sort all of this out and he will tell us all of these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. There is a lot going on in this text. Far more than we are able to do all of it justice in our small time frame this morning. Jesus was tired and thirsty from a big few days on foot heading from Jerusalem to Galilee. He stopped by a well because he was thirsty and the boys all nicked off and went to Maccas and he sat empty-handed with nothing to draw water with by this well at noon. It just so happened, I'm not, I'm not a big you know, believer in you know, things just happening You know, I believe that as God moves in our hearts, that as Jesus knew that there was a hook in his heart that he knew he had to go through Samaria, that this wasn't a just-so-as-it-happened moment. This is one of those moments that God had been orchestrating for years and years and years and years to reach this woman. Anyway, he sat empty with nothing to draw water, and this woman from a town nearby came out to draw some water. Jesus asking her for a, a drink elicits kind of a harsh response what you're asking me for a drink come again you're a jew i'm a samaritan this just doesn't play well together you're a man i'm a woman what business do you think you have i mean imagine jesus if somebody walked out now and saw this thing going on what are they going to think of you what are they going to think of me who are you to be doing this with me right here Jesus, not biting at her question, uh, but not ignoring it either, rolls into a spiel about living water. You know, here, the, the water in that hole, my friend, you might draw it up and fill those big clay vessels of yours and take it back and you'll drink it until you run out. And you'll drink it and then you'll be thirsty again. But I tell you now that the water that I have is living water. It is water that will Become like inside your heart a spring, and you will never, ever, ever, ever thirst again. But before I give you this living water, he said, go and, go and grab your husband. Haven't got one. And in this moment, we learn that this woman has got a checkered past. Not only is the man that she's living with now not her husband, but there have been five others. A revelation that is not new to Jesus, nor to her community, hence why she is there at midday to avoid all the chatter 
that would go on by that well with everyone else. Oh, there she is. Here she comes again, the one who's got and five husbands. She can't hold down a relationship. What's wrong with her? She hasn't got any sons. She's got no future. Let's not talk to her. She can come to the well at another time of day. A woman who, because of her life circumstances, had no standing. This, this woman here with Jesus, uh, realizing again and again and again that she is a woman of no hope, a woman of no agency or rights or any prospects in life. And in this moment, the awkward silence, knowing that this man who she perceives to be a prophet, knows every detail of her intimate relationship history. In this moment, it is like in 5.1 Dolby surround sound, all of the shame, all of the guilt, and all of the mistakes are blaring in surround sound in her head. I come to the well at this time of day because I don't get this when I come on my own. And now there's a man here. This man is telling me everything that I've done wrong. This man is reminding me of everything that I've already believed about myself to be true. And it is eating away at my insides. She feels judged. She feels condemned. She feels like a failure. However, in what could have been a gotcha kind of moment. See, I told you, sinner. I knew it. You've been like that all along, haven't you? Haven't been able to keep a boyfriend down. Haven't been able to get a job. Haven't been able to look after yourself. What's wrong with you, woman? Jesus sees past her life circumstances. He sees past her mistakes. He sees past her shame. He does not condemn her. He does not judge her. He does not add one more skerrick or ounce of guilt or shame to the pile already upon her shoulders. In fact, in what is one of the most upside down, you couldn't script this kind of moments. Jesus, for the very first time, reveals himself as the Messiah, to a woman, a sinful, broken, shame-riddled, from enemy territory, in the middle of a paddock at high noon by an ancient well, that he is the Christ that she has been longing for. There couldn't be a more unexpected, subversive, compassionate, and wildly unorthodox way for the Messiah to be announced in his own words for the very first time on planet Earth. This king and this kingdom is like no other the world has ever seen. Jesus flips the script. A moment of judgment becomes an incredible encounter of compassion. Nothing has changed from God's perspective. The kingdom of God flips the script. The script of exclusion, the script of religion, the script of perfection, the script of having it all together, the script of a neat and tidy life, the script of what qualifies someone for friendship with God. Jesus flips it on its head and says, you're welcome here. 
while this woman was in the throes of trying to come to terms with Jesus' claims, she asks one of the most pressing theological questions that first century Samaritans were asking at the time. Where is the proper place of worship? Where can I experience God? She asked him by the well. See, just a little bit of context on the Samaritans. They descended from the Israelite people, but they weren't sent into exile when the northern kingdom were overtaken by the Assyrians. And so to bolster their numbers, they began importing people from other and surrounding nations. And their religious, their cultural, their social and political flavors all into the region. Uh, the Samaritans continued to worship Yahweh, uh, the God of Israel, but also because of the importation of all of the other people groups, there was an abundance of gods that they could worship, and so they did. There was a plethora of gods being worshipped in the Samaritan worldview. Samaria was a racial, cultural, and theological melting pot that smelt to the Jews like a roadkill milkshake. Each camp held fast to the view that they were God's chosen people, chosen to lead um, the people. The Jews thought that they, through the lineage of David, were going to be the people to lead God's people. Uh, and the Samaritans thought that the Jews had corrupted the Torah, and so they were now off God's good books, and it was now the Samaritans who were going to be the one to lead God's people. In fact, they even had their own temples. On Mount Gerizim, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, is where the Samaritans worshipped. And then on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem is where the Jews had their separate temple. You see, to this backdrop of incredible division, of they said, we said, they're wrong, we're right, this is where we worship, this is where they worship, we're God's elect, no, we're God's elect, across this back and forth, disunity, disharmony, division, racial political, social, theological divide. It is against this backdrop of division that Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, that the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is speaking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him in spirit must worship him in spirit and in truth. And she says, say what? Not only had Jesus broken all the rules surrounding culture and gender stereotypes and taboos by talking with a woman, an unclean, sinful woman, but he just took a hammer to the box of religious expression and expectation and shattered it to a million pieces. He said, this is how you think you need to worship in that temple over there? While this mob, they think they need to worship in the temple over here. I can tell you now that there is a time coming, my friend. And there is a time coming and it is right here, right now, where a hammer is being taken to the religious expectations and duties. And it is going to be smashed into a gazillion pieces. And God will be worshipped from the heart. God will be worshipped from the heart. Not here on this mountain, nor over there on that mountain. Not in that particular church, as opposed to that particular church. Not on that denomination, as opposed to in that denomination. Not in that style, opposed to this particular style. God is not confined to the boxes and categories of man's own making. 
He is spirit and he will be worshipped as such from the heart and mind. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, or what you have done. You can worship God from the heart. And that is who he is looking for. God cannot and will not be limited by the constructs of man. No building can contain him. No ideology can own him. No theological framework will limit him. No nation, no tribe, or no tongue can monopolize him. He is for everyone. The temple kept this woman out, but in this moment, Jesus welcomed her in. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all have that feeling of the temple keeping us out. And you may have even walked into the room this morning with a, a sense of, I don't, I don't fit here, or I don't belong here. If, if anyone actually sitting around me knew what I, I, I did last night or did this week, then <whistles> the amount of people who walk into this building for, you know, tradies and all the rest of it, what is this place? A church? Oh, is lightning going to strike? <laughs> Careful, the roof might come down if I'm in this building. You know, we are always so aware, aren't we, of the reasons why not. But the overwhelming love and compassion of Jesus Christ in your life is such that any sense of not measuring up to the religious expectations of any man-made categories of what that means is done away with in his name. That there is a welcome for you, regardless of what you have done, regardless of where you are from, regardless of what your future looks like, there is a welcome into his family in Jesus' name. Compassion takes a wrecking ball to the ironclad barriers of religion and destroys them. Jesus intentionally crossed racial barriers, religious and theological barriers, and gender barriers to show that God is for everyone, that he is a uniter and not a divider. This was the moment that Jesus announced that there is no racism in his kingdom, there is no division in his kingdom, there is no gender divide in his kingdom, there is no racial or ethnic divisions in his kingdom. He came that we may become one new people, Jew and Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither man nor woman, that God looks beyond all of the man-made categories and looks straight at our hearts, and that's what he's looking for. We are to be people of compassion, of love, of empathy, of grace and mercy. If all of these things are true of God's kingdom, which is here and is yet to come, it is possible that in our own hearts, in our churches, in our families, in the communities in which we gather, that racial hate, gender discrimination and religious barriers are not welcome. That is what Jesus is teaching us in this moment. That whether man or woman, Samaritan or Jew, rich or poor, if you live at the pointy end of town in a fancy house, or you live somewhere out in the suburbs, if your bank account's brimming, overflowing, got more cash than you know what to do with, if you're struggling to make ends meet, in the eyes of Jesus, not one of that counts one skerrick when it comes to his love for you. We see this repeated time and time and time and time again, story after story after story of the scriptures. And what greater news could there be for the world right now, which is more divided than it has, I shouldn't say ever been, because I haven't been in other times of history, but I 
am here now. And seeing, seeing people in Atlanta this weekend mowed down with a man with a gun because they're, they're Asian. That's not okay. Seeing in our history what has happened to our First Nations people and how the church has approached these things is not okay. You know, I understand that we are quite um, Anglo-Saxon as a community here and even in the Shire. And there is so much at risk. If we are the people who see people just like ourselves at the exclusion of others, thinking that we are the normal ones. The truth is, we're a minority. There is a great big world out there full of God's beautiful people who look and talk and think and do things so much differently than you and I. And to think that we, just because our white middle-class status here in the Shire have some monopoly on God and His presence, we have to be kidding ourselves. That God is for all people. It is across these valleys of division in the world that we are called to be bridges of reconciliation and remove the barriers of exclusion with compassionate service and love. I wasn't going to share this. I was sharing with Davey Lovell on uh, Friday night that um, somehow, I don't know how, um, this building is uh, known on Google as a mosque as well as a church. (laughs) I promise I didn't do it. Um, I'm not that smart. My strategic brain is not that clever. If I could have thought of it, I probably would have. At 11 o'clock on Fridays over the years, uh, we've had delivery drivers and people driving around the suburbs who um, have got on their phone to Google um, mosque in Caring Bar, whatever the case is, and Kingsway Community Church comes up as hit number one. And there have been times over the years where at 11 o'clock on a Friday morning, uh, Muslim gentlemen have walked in um, asking, where can I pray? And, and, I, and I wonder how um, at other points in time, or if it wasn't, um, and I'm not blowing out, tooting our own trumpet here, but maybe in another expression of church somewhere else, how that might have been met. Oh, no, sorry, mate, this is up, up the road. I remember one day saying to uh, one of these guys, hey, yeah, come, come on in, now, open the doors, and um, you can pray in here, I'm happy to pray with you, and um, just be on your way. He's like, oh, cool, thanks, and he came in and he prayed, and the next day he dropped back in a big tray of baklava to say thanks. You know, yeah. Is our framework of theology and our understanding of God's love big enough for us to accommodate people of all walks in our community? And I think it has to. I think the ability for us to welcome all people as they have an encounter with Jesus, not with our good ideas and with our thoughts and but with Jesus, that we provide a place like a well for people to have their own genuine encounter with the living presence and have their lives transformed by Him. Just then His disciples came back, verse 27, they marveled that He was talking with a woman. But no one said anything. No one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar And went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who has told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out to the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples, still distracted with their cheeseburgers and Big Macs, 
They said, we might have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then come the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. To which again I would say, there is the harvest in a field of division that we are called into with a spirit of Christ, which is a spirit of unity. There is a harvest of people desperate to see a world united, and we in Jesus have the answer. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. I mean, is that not why we are here? That many in this town would believe? That the the, the, the net result of all that we do as a community, be it worship, be it un- greater understanding in the word, be it gathering in communities both big and small, seeking justice for the poor and the marginalized, giving our time, giving our money, serving one another, welcoming one another, being the people of God, is not everything leading to this thing? that we would be the ones sent on Jesus' mission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Let me remind you that it's not because of facilities. It's not because of flashy services. It's not because of the size of our gatherings or if the preacher's wearing a collared shirt or not or the leadership prowess of any particular leader those, those things aren't inherently bad. It is lives touched by the radical compassion of love and Jesus that go and touch other lives with radical love and compassion that will bring many in this town to believe. I mean, what we do here is important. And the way that we do it is important. It speaks to who we are and what we value. And the way that we love to worship God with our best and what we can bring out of how he's created us in our own uniqueness but by no measure is that the thing that will save many it is the radical love and compassion that jesus has done in our own lives when taken and transferred to another that will see the freedom and healing and salvation that for generations have been prayed for so i'll get the band to come up and i want to leave us with this thought I suspect that Jacob never, in his wildest dreams, would he have imagined that the humble well he dug end up having God himself rest his tired feet, his thirsty soul and body against his well. You know, as Jacob broke the ground, one shovel 
at a time. Never just in that simple act. Never in his wildest dreams could he have imagined that this well, in 1800 years' time, would be the place where Jesus would have an encounter with a foreign woman who had a reputation for all of the wrong reasons and revealed to her that he is Christ. The well that Jacob dug thousands of years earlier became the facilitator of a moment that would change a life. A village, and it would shape the Christian call to compassion into eternity. And how Mrs. Bingley of him. That Mrs. Bingley, she foresaw the need for a strong church in the Sutherland Shire before there was a Sutherland Shire. And she wanted her land to be where it began. Little would she know that in various iterations over the years, that thousands would be reached through her faithful gift. In 1947, Mrs. Bingley dug a well. She prayed. She responded to God. She held fast. She gave incredibly. And a well was built 74 years ago that we now have the honor to meet by and sit in the presence of Jesus. And Mrs. Bingley dug a well and at one point, a bozo like me would be a part of a community that gets baptized in the Holy Spirit and gets to be part of what God is doing here. Little did Mrs. Bingley know that because she gave two blocks of land 74 years ago, that everything that Jesus does in this place would come to pass. And I want to leave you with an encouragement. The Lord spoke to me this week to remind you of don't get discouraged in your digging. The way that you are serving on our kids' team, and I'm saying that for people who should be in the room but are serving our kids, and I know there are others in the room who are serving our kids. The way that you show up for our youth, the way that you commit to praying for the church, the ways that you serve in our community care projects to seek justice, to love the poor and the marginalized of our community, the way that you give of your money, of your time, are all turns of the shovel. That you are digging a well where Jesus will continue to meet future generations with his radical compassion and love. There are people, young and old, who just like the Samaritan woman are living a life of shame and guilt, a life of regret and pain, a life of isolation and despair. People who cannot see the past the barriers of division, of judgment and exclusion. People who, for fear of being seen, move like shadows around our villages as to avoid judgment and condemnation. It is for these people that we dig. It is for the ones left out. It is for the ones forgotten. It is for the ones who feel like they have no place. It is for the ones that over years gone by, barriers of religion and all kinds of yuckiness have been placed up. It is for these people that we dig. 
Not only are we to follow the example of Jesus' radical compassion on, of love, it is us, on us, to be the Jacobs of our day, people with the vision of Mrs. Bingley, who creates spaces and environments that facilitate the presence of God, places where his compassion, mercy, forgiveness, and love sets people free. So let's keep digging. And the well has been opened. Let's keep loving people from every walk of life by this well. And I know it's costly. I know that many have got calloused hands from years of digging, years of serving, years of giving, years of praying, years of believing, years of fasting, years of believing God. I know hearts are tired and hands are calloused. And I know at times giving up and throwing in the shovel to the ground and walking away seems like the sensible thing to do. But be encouraged that our digging opens the way for the living water to flow. Father, I pray that this story of the woman at the well would be retold and retold and retold through your scripture, but through our lives. That we would be people that would cross all of the barriers and all of the divides, all of the rifts and all of the valleys that separate people. That we would be the people of a reconciliation message brought with compassion and love that says you're welcome here. And Father, I'm acutely aware of the largeness of such prayer that we ought to be prepared for who it is that you are calling us to love and embrace and share the good message of Jesus with. So, Father, we prepare ourselves knowing our identity, knowing that we are chosen, knowing that we are loved, knowing that we are picked by the King for a purpose. And Father, I pray that it is out of our identity and out of our purpose that we can walk full on, straight ahead into the calling that you have for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you've been blessed by this teaching. If you'd like to connect with us, make a financial gift, or find out more about Kingsway Churches, head to kingsway.org.au. Have a good one.